This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The urgent search for a truly Christian culture. Modern Western culture, and especially American culture, worships the idea that everything should be new. Everyone wants new clothes, new cars, new houses, and even a new morality. To be dated is to be discarded. The desire for the modern carries a heavy psychological cost. When we dispose of our past, we become rootless, isolated, and alone. One of the goals of the American TFP is to help people see that tradition is not a burden to be discarded. It is a guide to a life more in line with our own human nature and our need to walk with God. During its formative years, the American TFP was led by Mr. Luis Antonio Fragelli. While contemplating the great French cathedral of Notre-Dame de Paris, he saw the links that tied medieval European society to the church. He describes those links in his marvelous essay, A Civilization Modeled on Christ. How do you speak of an era in which you did not live, a time known only by means of books, an epoch that took place so many centuries ago? Its distant past notwithstanding, this era left such a mark that, after the lives of our Lord Jesus and his holy family, no other period in human history has made a more lasting impression on mankind. I am, of course, referring to the Middle Ages. To this day, Americans planning to visit Europe are sure to include cathedrals, castles, and other medieval wonders in their itineraries. I do not know anyone, at least in my circle of family and friends, who travels to Europe to see its skyscrapers. What modern edifice can be compared favorably with a Gothic cathedral? Its construction intrigues the architect, its power demands respect, its sacrality inspires veneration. The visitor of such a cathedral leaves marveling at its majestic proportions and bearing, and equally enchanted by the paternal welcome that, by means of a thousand imponderables, exudes from its massive walls. A giant of stone, defying time, it reminds us of a past long ago and, at the same time, captivates us today. Its towering presence, dwarfing the faithful beside it, reminds me of how our Lord said God watches over us as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Once, during a brief visit to Paris, I was praying in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, contemplating its interior. The impression I received was as a grace arising from the soul of an angel, or even our Lord himself, dwelling within the holy tabernacle. Superlatively serious and elevated, it evoked affection, serenity, and paternality. The following day, as I was leaving a cathedral after Mass, the organ began to play. Its celestial notes echoing through the naves were so sublime that my entire being felt as though I were being transported from this earth to heaven. At that moment, I found it easy to imagine the heavenly anthems that welcomed the souls of the blessed on their reception into paradise. To this day... I have no small nostalgia for Notre Dame. One day, I was conveying my impressions of Notre Dame to Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, 
the renowned professor of contemporary and medieval history and Catholic leader extraordinaire. Pointing to his right arm, he confided with his customary calm, quote, Were this arm not needed by the Catholic struggle, and were Our Lady to ask me to give it up so that Notre Dame might never be destroyed, I would offer it immediately, unquote. Indeed, Dr. Plinio's appreciation for Notre Dame was such that one day, while contemplating her, he affirmed this worthy temple of the one true God to be, quote, the joy of the entire world, unquote. Let us imagine contemporary man awakening to a world beset with the problems that preoccupy his mind. Opening his window to admit fresh air, he sees in the distance a medieval cathedral, always present, ever at his disposition, with a majesty that reminds him of God's. Who can doubt that if he has not already hardened his heart, his soul will gain confidence for the battles ahead? How blessed it would be to live near such a cathedral! In contemplating her, we might come to see the Middle Ages more clearly than by reading shelves of dusty tomes, for she is the living embodiment of that noble era. She speaks to us of the spirit that created her, for a work reflects its author, and, in this case, the author was not a single man, but a civilization. The primary material of this civilization were barbarians. After the decay, the decline, and the fall of the Roman Empire, only the Holy Church survived, and she alone redeemed the barbarians from their darkness with the light of Christ, her founder. It was these converted barbarians who built the great cathedrals and castles, created the orders of chivalry, and founded religious orders, hospitals, and universities. The medieval knights championed the defenseless, the nobles did battle to protect their subjects, and the king watched over his countrymen. The nuns cared for the poor, the monks taught the uneducated, and Holy Mother Church guided the faithful to heaven. Men did not neglect the supernatural in the course of their daily lives, nor did God remain aloof from their cares and labors in this veil of tears. Of course, evil remained to stain even the Middle Ages. Its beauty was blemished with envies, passions, injustices, intrigues, revolts, and wars, the spoiled fruit of original sin. But these human failings were tempered by the spirit of an age in which man, from peasant to king, sought to live his life in imitation of Christ. For medieval man knew that God loved him personally, and his love for God likewise arose from his very being. God's love for man, and man's love for God, nurtured patience, pardon, charity, and compassion, and inspired hope and confidence, the confidence of a child in the Father who loves him. With deep reverence for God's sovereignty and childlike confidence in his love, medieval man opened his soul and his society to be shaped by God and modeled upon him. 
This model produced a man who was strong yet merciful, bold yet reflective, great yet good. More than anything else, medieval man saw in our Lord the Redeemer that took his mission to its logical end in willingly embracing the sacrifice of the cross, avoiding not even the least suffering for its fulfillment. This sacrificial ideal embodied in the life and death of the God-man burst the empty bubble of life as worldly pleasure, an illusion so prevalent in our day. Dr. Plinio once observed that it was evident that medieval society was born of an extraordinary grace, which he likened metaphorically as having flown from the side of our Lord when pierced by the lance of Longinus. In that moment in which our Savior, surrendering all, shed the last drop of his blood, he made reparation to his Father on our behalf for every sin that had ever been or would be committed against God. It is not difficult to imagine, indeed, for the same moment, God's only begotten Son purchased from His Father with His life's blood and His mother's tears, the grace that gave birth to a civilization centered on His divine person, the glory of Christian civilization that we revere as the Middle Ages. Through this grace of discernment, medieval man allowed himself to be formed by our Lord and deeply moved by the unfathomable perfection of His attributes, in particular his wisdom, for everything Christ taught was wise, judicious, forceful, and taken to its logical end. From the adoration of our Lord was born the veneration of Our Lady. Medieval man understood that there was an inseparable bond between mother and son, and that the Blessed Virgin's role was not only to bring her son into the world, but to bring the world to her Son. No one knows Jesus Christ more intimately than his mother, and it is through devotion to Our Lady that we grow in knowledge of our Lord. This is the heart of the Middle Ages' veneration of the Mother of God, who commonly graces the rose windows of its cathedrals. The hatred that has inspired countless defamations against the Middle Ages persists to our day. The world's enmity to a Christian civilization also endures and testifies to the truths written in these pages. His Holiness, Leo XIII, the Pope of the great social encyclicals of the 20th century, confirms this with that assurance that comes from the chair of St. Peter. Referring to the Middle Ages in his encyclical Immortali Dei, he declares, quote, There once was a time when the states were governed by the philosophy of the gospel. Then it was that the power and divine virtue of Christian wisdom had diffused itself through the laws, institutions, and morals of the people, permeating all ranks and relations of civil society. Then, too, the religion instituted by Jesus Christ, established firmly in befitting dignity, flourished everywhere 
by the favor of princes and the legitimate protection of magistrates, and church and state were happily united in concord and friendly interchange of good offices. The state, constituted in this wise, bore fruits important beyond all expectation, whose remembrance is still and always will be in renown. Witnessed as they are by countless proofs, which can never be blotted out or ever obscured by any craft of any enemies. Christian Europe had subdued barbarous nations, changed them from a savage to a civilized condition, from superstition to true worship. It victoriously rolled back the tide of Mohammedan conquest, retained the headship of civilization, stood forth in the front rank as leader and teacher of all, in every branch of national culture, bestowed on the world the gift of true and many-sided liberty, and most wisely founded the very numerous institutions for the solace of human suffering. And if we inquire how it was able to bring about so altered a condition of things, the answer is, beyond all question, in large measure, through religion under whose auspices so many great undertakings were set on foot, through whose aid they were brought to completion. Unquote. As previously noted, the Middle Ages was not devoid of defect. After all, it did not fall into the decay that led to the Renaissance because it was too good. Sin, doubtlessly immense sin, aborted the development of a civilization such as God himself intended for mankind, and a lamentable decadence began, for the corruption of the best is indeed the worst. For those who love Christ and therefore Christian civilization, one question yet remains. What would the world we live in be like now, if the path of our medieval forefathers toward the perfection of a civilization modeled on Christ had continued its ascent. We live in a world whose structure is increasingly global. We see this in the products that we buy and the foods that we eat. We also see the rapidity in which news and information travel. We can, if we wish, know more about events in a country halfway around the world than our ancestors knew about the towns only 20 miles away from their homes. No one wants to return to the isolation of the past. It would be impossible, even if we wanted to. However, there are lessons that our medieval ancestors knew about balancing world events and those happening in their own villages. Mr. Jose Antonio Ureta describes those lessons in his essay, How the Medieval Social Order found the balance between the local and the global. As globalism comes under increasing attack, the right attitude toward the local nation and the global world is hard to find. Too much attachment to a local place can lead to narrow and distorted perspectives that can stifle development. Too little loyalty to a nation in favor of vague global links can cause selfish individualism that ignores the interests of the common good. The constant tension between the local and the global, the individual and the communal, has always plagued modern history. 
The real balance was granted to humanity as a gift of God through the Church during the Middle Ages. A universal vision was supplied by the theocentric, church-centered, and sacral character of the medieval social order. The generalized practice of the cardinal virtue of temperance provided balance and common sense. Temperance favored the development of a strong love for country and everything local, while simultaneously fostering a parallel love for universal values represented by Christendom. Thus, medieval man built a social, political, and international structure similar to that of a Gothic cathedral. The virtues were like the strong and opposing columns that united and balanced one another as they met at the junction of a Gothic arch. This balance could be seen in the structure of political power. While all the political power in classical antiquity was concentrated in the hands of the ruler, the medieval system parceled out sovereignty from top to bottom all over society. In this system, the supreme head of the state, whether emperor or king, shared his dominion with the oldest and most loyal servants of the nation, giving them fiefs where they could exercise all the attributes of public authority in their personal names and not as mere delegates of the sovereign. This is very similar to the ordinary power of a bishop in his diocese, who rules as a successor of the apostles and not just as a pontifical delegate or administrator. By parceling out sovereignty, the political power could perfectly harmonize with the need to respect freedom and stimulate the vital flux of free initiative coming from below. This strong political architecture, combining authority and freedom, prevented medieval society as a whole alas, not in every case, from falling either into the iron clasp of despotism or uncontrolled waves of anarchy. This same equation of distributed political power helped balance the material relations between the different regions and the reigning capital within the country. At the same time, it worked to establish a universal balance between the various countries within Christendom. There was what might be called an equilibrium between sound universalism and a parallel and sound localism. Sound universalism was based on the Christian faith that teaches that all men are created as an image and likeness of God. All humanity strives toward the same universal goal of seeing him face to face for all eternity in heaven. Indeed, the word Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, meaning universal. It is rightly applied to the Church, for as the Catechism of the Council of Trent states, quote, She is not confined to any one country or class of men, but embraces, within the amplitude of her love, all mankind. That is why to the Church belong all the faithful who have existed from Adam to the present day, or who shall exist in the profession of the true faith to the end of time, and also because all who desire eternal salvation must cling to and embrace her, like those who entered the ark to escape perishing in the flood." Unquote. 
As the revealed religion for all humanity, the Catholic Church necessarily transcends all cultures. The basis of a sound universalism in being open to the Church's universal worldview that embraces the whole order of beings, both supernatural and natural, in a harmonious relationship between faith and reason. The Christian religion is also the religion of the Incarnation, in which all earthly realities have an instrumental role in aiding salvation. The marvels of creation are appreciated by the faithful and indirectly utilized by the Church. This implies a loving interest and appreciation for even the smallest and most peripheral realities as a tiny reflection of God's perfection, like a drop of water on a leaf reflects the sun. This harmony between universalism and localism of the Catholic Church was well expressed by the culture of the Middle Ages. One of the delights of touring Europe is to enjoy the universal worldview expressed in local varieties of architectural styles, foods, fashions, music, entertainment, and other fields. This variety is found in every corner, sometimes even in two small villages within the same valley. It comes from the medieval, parceled-out sovereignty that favored a sound regionalism. A parallel cultural universalism of the Middle Ages was represented not only by the universities, a medieval creation of the church, but also by the real brotherhood existing among all countries within Christendom. French historian Henri Daniel Ropes, in his book Cathedral and Crusade, describes the profound union that existed all over Europe during that springtime of the faith. Quote, Christian Europe was mindful of her unity because all men were subject to a universal order. Now, this organic whole, inspired by common principles, owed its existence to a single cause— the profound influence of the faith and the overriding authority of the Church. She was clearly the guide of nations, for it was she who imparted to mankind the notion of their common destiny. In proclaiming them sons of God redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, she convinced them that they were brothers, one another, raised above the conflict of private interests. All the baptized constitute on earth a living and fraternal body, enlivened by the same principles, linked in a common effort. In future, we shall designate this body by its proper name and call it Christendom. It is a nation, a community, confined by no geographical framework, a community whose members feel at home. It is a society, populus Christianus, where all social and professional inequality should be resolved in a single harmony. It is, in fact, a fatherland, for whom every member must be ready to sacrifice his life. Unquote. Thus, Christendom was a single entity that transcended the several Christian countries without absorbing them. However, Inside the very bosom of this living unity, a religious and moral crisis developed. 
One of its dramatic consequences was the obliteration of Christendom's harmonious balance between a sound universalism and sound localism. This crisis, dating from the Renaissance, eventually gave rise to the birth of revolutionary forms of nationalism and other ideologies that now threaten the West. In our opening essay of this podcast, Mr. Fragelli referred to, quote, a man who was strong yet merciful, bold yet reflective, great yet good, unquote. We need such men in our world today. Much of the chaos of modern society comes from the lack of such men. How, one might ask, did medieval man transmit these characteristics to the next generation? How might we plant them in our own children? Mr. John Horvat shares one such method in his essay, Time to Return to Medieval Courtesy Books. To the quote-unquote woke crowd, teaching civility and manners favors artificial concepts that reinforce power structures and control behavior. This Marxist perspective reduces everything to the class struggle terms of oppressor and oppressed. For this reason, manners must be eradicated and never taught to vulnerable children. So many things today reflect this anti-manners mentality. This trend can be seen in brutal and obscene speech or texting. It is found in ugly, dirty, and torn clothing. Coddled children absorb this lack of manners from uncouth adults who fail to impose rules lest they hurt feelings. Indeed, in the Marxist worldview, Western civilization is the culprit for manners and all things racist, colonialist, and evil. Hence, children must be protected from courtesy and manners that transmit this civilization's artificial and hateful values to future generations. Like Rousseau before them, those who hate manners long to return to pre-modern, even medieval times, when things were more tribal, natural, and spontaneous. Pre-modern children were quote-unquote noble little savages who ran about wildly without supervision. Ribald signs of medieval revelry and feasting are the revolutionary ideal. However, such depictions are figments of postmodern imaginations. Quote, this image of ill-mannered chaos is much more of a contemporary invention than one true to the Middle Ages, writes medieval scholar Professor Catherine Walton. Indeed, medieval times developed manners and courtesy. Children were taught to behave not like little savages, but little Christians who respected others. They learned the rules of good living. It could not be otherwise. Christian civilization facilitates the practice of virtue. Courtesy and manners allow people to practice acts of charity toward neighbors for the love of God. Relationships can then flourish in an atmosphere of peace and harmony. Early training during childhood develops good habits of respect that govern their whole lives. The proof that pre-modern children minded their manners is found in history. Medieval scholars, like Professor Walton, claim a genre of literature called courtesy books circulated widely. 
These were manuals by which children learned manners and courtesy as part of their upbringing. The teachings of these books filtered down to all levels of society in the Middle Ages. Courtesy books were written in straightforward language, which indicated how a child should behave in every life circumstance. The child learned how to walk, dress, read, eat, play, and socialize. The little books were written in clear didactic prose with little poetic embellishment. Courtesy books were developed in 12th century Christian Europe. Their origin appears to be inspired by the leading institutions of the time. Parents obtained these books because they wanted their children to learn manners that corresponded to the practice of virtue and help them progress in life. In his book, From Childhood to Chivalry, Nicholas Orme links courtesy and chivalry. The knight was well-mannered and treated all with charity and manners. The code of chivalry insisted upon protection and extreme courtesy to the weak and unprotected. Parents saw this behavior as ideal and incorporated it into child-rearing attitudes and literature. A second inspiration for courtesy books came from the monasteries. Monks striving after perfection also applied this quest to human relationships. They wrote behavior manuals for young novices. One example was the Latin language text De Institutione Naviciorum, written by the famous theologian Hugh of St. Victor in Paris, France, around 1141. The novices received norms on dressing, speaking, eating, and behaving in the most sacral manner possible. From these sources, authors wrote courtesy books that soon became extremely popular throughout Europe. The first texts were in Latin and limited to novices and children of the aristocracy. However, French and English translations soon followed and filtered down to youth at all levels of society. These books continued to be published into the Renaissance and the early modern era. The contents of courtesy books were written in direct and simple prose that children could understand. These aids were not teaching manuals for parents, but guides for children to read and obtain a notion of what was expected of them. One prevalent English example of this genre is The Book of Courtesy, written in Middle English around 1452 and later printed in 1477. Extant copies exist, allowing readers to gain insight into the medieval and pre-modern minds. Right from the beginning, the child is instructed to detach himself from vice and seek after virtue. Indeed, this first piece of advice permeates the whole book. All manners have this goal, since they are the concrete application of the lofty goal of living life in common virtue. The specific guidelines could not be more practical and direct. The author does not mince words or try to adorn his advice with poetry. There is no attempt to avoid hurt feelings. Our Lady is the perfect example for mothers wanting to cultivate virtue and courtesy in their children. The morning preparation is clear. Quote, when you awake in the morning, attend first to your prayers. Then comb your hair, clean your ears, clean your face, and purge your nose of the vile matter inside, unquote. 
Outside the house, the child is expected to impress others. Quote, When you leave the house, do so with a pleasant expression on your face. Speak nicely to any you see and walk slowly and demurely. Don't turn off and throw stones or sticks or wrestle with dogs. Walk along quietly and politely so that all who see you say, There passes a good child. Unquote. At the table, the instructions were straightforward. Quote, Share your delicacies with your fellow diners so as to be seen as kind and generous and don't complain if your serving is small. Don't chew on bones because that is what dogs do. Instead, use your knife to cut off the meat. Don't chew with your mouth open. Unquote. These are samples of the kind of norms found in medieval courtesy books. There are other counsels for play, worship, work, and study. They are imbued with the faith, thus showing that there are Christian ways for doing everything. Quote, The existence of an entire genre of literature on the subject reinforces just how much weight, politeness, and courtesy carried in medieval culture, Professor Walton explains. Chaos did not reign in the medieval child's world. Their behavior was carefully monitored, and great attention was paid to teaching them to mind their manners. Unquote. Thus, manners are not artificial rules for controlling people's lives. They are common-sense guidelines developed over time by Christian peoples to facilitate the practice of virtue. The courtesy books made this process easier since they helped create good habits early in children's souls before vices gain footholds. Indeed, modern society is paying the price for its rejection of civilized behavior. Lack of manners and civility is tearing society apart. A carefree attitude favoring selfish living facilitates a hellish way of life where no one respects the other and innocent children are left without guidance at that tender age when they should be developing habits and character. What is needed today are the simple, straightforward counsels that mince no words as found in medieval courtesy books. Tragically, it is not only children who need courtesy books. Plenty of adults could use their wise advice. Such books are much needed today. However, a return to medieval courtesy books also requires a return to the Christian order that inspired them. This concludes The Urgent Search for a Truly Christian Culture. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 
by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.